Hi, you're listening to a podcast brought to you by the teaching team at New Life in North Lincolnshire. New Life is committed to helping transform people and transform places through the love and power of Jesus Christ. We hope you, in some small way, will be blessed and transformed by this message. Good morning, New Life. Um, I, I want to start with, with some caveats. I want to correct Elena, no offence. Um, this isn't the first time I've spoken here since 2019, because I've never preached to the congregation here. Um, so you are getting your first Rob Riddler um, in person, which I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing. Secondly, I am from near Birmingham, all right? So I apologise if, sort of if I slip into some unintelligible language. I'm not speaking in tongues, all right? It's just my accent. I can't help it. I blame my parents. Um, Thirdly, and, and I feel it's important that you, know, you honour people when you, when you get up on stage, especially when you're new. Um, Dan Scuse is my best friend. I'm watching Abigail dancing in the service. I'm saying like she looks like a mum, she's got the temperament of a mum, but at least she's got her dad's dance moves. Okay, so that's on camera. I love you, Dan. Um, I thought we'd start with a game. Is that all right with everyone? Yeah, I'm not going to embarrass anyone, don't worry. No one is going to have to get up on stage or do any of the horrific things that I've seen Elaine and make the leadership of the church do. Okay, I want you to very simply close your eyes. And for those of you watching at home, this is a game you can join in as well. Um, you don't need anything. So just close your eyes. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe an image to you as best I can. And I want you to try and picture what it is. Okay, really simple. All right, so here's the first one. Everyone close your eyes. I'm not going to throw anything at you, I promise. Okay. It's a sphere, okay, a spherical object that's kind of greeny yellow. Uh, it's got some white lines on it, and it's, it's almost like it's got hundreds of little teeny tiny hooks on it. Okay, you can open your eyes. What, anyone want to shout out what they think that is? A tennis ball. It is indeed a tennis ball. All right, it's going to get harder now. Everyone close your eyes. Here comes number two. All right. I want you to imagine two black circles. On top of those black circles is a red rectangle. On top of that red rectangle is a red trapezium. Okay, if you don't know what a trapezium is, good luck. Um, red trapezium. And inside the red trapezium are two smaller trapeziums that are sort of white, maybe see-through, something like that. So two black circles, a red rectangle on top, a red trapezium on top, and then within the red trapezium are a couple of smaller, like, see-through ones. Okay, anyone got a, got a picture of that something... Oh, you're not allowed to answer this anymore. Anyone who's not Elena got any idea what that looks like? Sorry, a, a car. It is indeed... A car. All right, here's the third one, okay? We're getting even harder now, and I'm going to have to look at the picture I've got in front of me because I can't remember. Okay, everyone close your eyes. Here we go. Last one, I promise. All right, maybe. Um, all right, I want you to imagine a square. It's a brown square. To the left of this square is another square that's also brown. That brown square has a smaller brown square inside it. Going back to the first square... It has two small squares and a blue rectangle inside it. You can position those however you like. And on top of this bigger square is a red triangle. Okay. Apparently, Dina knows this one. So uh, we'll, we'll go... 
<laughs> be hilarious if you're wrong after that, Dina. All right, we'll, we'll stop there, Dina. Is it a house? Well, let's see the picture. Um, Gregory is getting... It is a house. Okay. Well done. Everyone give Dina a round of applause. Uh, I, I am proud of you as well. Okay. I want you to close your eyes for a sec. I lied. Okay, there's one more. I want you to imagine that you're now in this position, and you're on the stage, and you are trying to describe something for other people to picture. And what would you say if you were asked to describe God? What would you say? You can open your eyes again. But I want you to imagine that you are standing here and being asked, how do you describe God? I think for a lot of people, they picture God as an old guy, an old white guy, let's, let's face it, you know, Western iconography. And he's got a white beard uh, and long white hair. And he sits on a throne. And there's this element of sort of judgment of like, well, who's righteous and who's unrighteous and, and and I think if we we're going to go a bit further maybe we'd see God as one who kind of blesses those who follow him yeah is that reasonable well ladies and gentlemen we have just described Santa okay um, <laughs> so, the whole point of this series what we want to do is unpack the trinity a, a little bit and Pastor Russ is going to be sharing the second and third parts over the next couple of weeks. And sometimes we can kind of get into our heads that God is a little bit like Santa. And we'd never say that. Of course, we'd never say that. But God gives gifts to those who he loves and the the nice list and the naughty list are going to go to hell and be away from God forever. And he sits on a throne and looking all old and wise and white. And that's that's God. And what we want to do in this series is just help to unpack a little bit more about who God is. Let's pray before we we launch into that. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are here in the room with us. Thank you that your desire is that we would grasp something of who you are and of your desires for us and your world. Lord, help us over the next three weeks to just understand a little bit better who you are and your desires for a relationship with us. And may our hearts and our minds be transformed through getting just a tiny bit closer to who you are. Amen. Amen. So the, my son is at school, and he's um, in year four. I had to think that. And he's doing a topic on the Stone Age. Uh, and he's also done a little bit on the Iron Age, and then there's the Bronze Age. Uh, and we go through all these different ages. There's the Dark Ages. We don't know much about that. And then there's the Middle Ages, and then we get a bit to modernity. And now we live in what's called the Information Age. The Information Age, or the Digital Age, some people call it. And everything in our era is defined by how much knowledge can I find how much knowledge can I find? So here's some, here's some cool statistics for you. Um, Elena, can I borrow your phone, please? Just because I took mine out of my pocket for no good reason. Okay. On here, Elena has more information than every person in the world from 1999 and before. So before the turn of the millennium, every single person that has ever existed, all of their knowledge combined and put together would be less than a tenth of the knowledge that Elena has access to on this phone. 
less than a tenth of all knowledge throughout history from before the millennium is held on a phone. It's unbelievable that every minute, every minute, over 500 hours of videos are uploaded onto YouTube. And we're contributing to that um, this morning and every Sunday. 500 hours per minute is uploaded onto YouTube. There are 1.86 billion websites. That's one for every three and a half people in the world, essentially. There is more and more data and information that is constantly put out there. And we live that life. Right? We want to know that I want to know things. I hate not knowing things. Right? Is anyone with me? Like, I hate not knowing things. I don't like when my kid asks me a question, like, Daddy, how does this work? I don't know. I'll say that to him because I want him to know that I'm flawed and, and I don't know everything. But I wish I did know everything. Faith, however, faith invites us to embrace the mystery. Faith invites us to embrace mystery. See, we cannot know everything about God. Like, that might sound like a really terrible place to start a series explaining about God, right? But we cannot know everything about God. And that is a tension, a, a, a problem that we have to learn to be okay with. We have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. In, a, in an era where you can find anything out you like, like Rachel and I are sat watching TV last night, and we're watching The Wheel. Anyone else love The Wheel? With Michael McIntyre. I've got about five people with me. Okay, But like... There's, there's a celebrity on there. I don't know who this is. Pick up your phone. Oh, that's who it is. Okay, great. Three seconds, I can find out who somebody is. Okay, I know I can find anything I want instantly, but I have to learn in my faith. There are things I don't know. There are things I can't know, and I have to be okay with that. Here are some of the things that we have to wrestle with that we can never understand. Jesus is fully man and fully God. Hands up if that makes complete sense to you. Okay? I cannot quite grasp that. That Jesus was as human as I am, and yet also fully God. That he's fully God, but he cries, and he feels hungry, and he gets angry in the same way that I do. But he's also God. I can't, I can't get that. I fully believe in a God that heals. Fully. And I have seen healing and I've experienced healing. But I also know that not everybody's healed. So I've, I've lived with chronic back pain for 11 years. I've been prayed for dozens and dozens and dozens of times throughout, throughout that period. And I've had to learn that that's okay. That that doesn't mean God doesn't want to heal me. That doesn't mean God loves me any less than somebody over here that he does heal. It means that there's something going on within the will and the purpose and design of God that I don't know. And either I can let that be, well, God's let me down. God's not done the right thing. Or I say, you know what? This is what he's given me and that's okay. And I fully believe that one day he will heal me fully. And that might be when I die and I'm resurrected. That might be today or somewhere in between. I don't know. But 
I believe in a God that heals, and yet not everyone is healed. One of the big things that people struggle with when they come to faith, or about a barrier perhaps to faith, is what's called the problem of evil. If God is all-loving and loves everyone and loves his creation, and if God is all-powerful and can do anything, then why does evil still exist? If God was loving, he'd want to get rid of evil. And if he's powerful enough, he can get rid of evil. So if he loves and is powerful, why hasn't he got rid of evil yet? And we have some answers towards that because we would point people towards the cross and the salvation God gives. We'd point people towards the hope of resurrection in the future. But we cannot perfectly answer, it will satisfy everybody, why that tension exists, okay? There are mysteries and tensions within our faith that we just have to live with. And we have to get comfortable with that. And the Trinity falls into that perfectly. And again, I'm going to contradict Elena here. I'm not going to explain the Trinity. I'm not. And here's why, because I don't get it. I believe it 100%. 100%, Wholeheartedly, with my head and my heart, I believe in the Trinity. I have ways and things that that help me to grasp it. But that is something, the concept of three in one, is something that is beyond my mental capacity. And I can't fully explain and understand it. And that's okay. Can I tell you, that is okay. It is okay to have questions that you might not find an answer to this side of eternity. It's okay. It's okay to doubt. Can I say that from the stage? It's okay to have doubts. That's okay. We have to be comfortable with the fact that there are things that our information-heavy age cannot answer and will never be able to answer outside of a personal revelation from God. And there are pictures and images that people have come up with to try and help explain the truth. So Elena talked about the egg. Okay. Um, so you've got an egg is comprised of a shell and the white and the yolk, and they're three distinct parts, but it's one egg. Okay. And that, there's a reason that it might be a Sunday school picture, but it, it kind of gives us a, a little bit of a picture. Um, another one that Elena mentioned is water. So that water can exist as ice and as flowing water, liquid, that's the word, as liquid, and as steam. Okay, It can exist in three separate forms, but um, they're all still water. And I like that in a way, but you kind of end up with a slightly sort of Superman-esque thing where like, you, can't have wa- you can't have steam and ice at the same time. Okay, like you can create conditions that do, but go, let's bear with me. All right? In real life, you don't get ice and steam. and You end up with, like, well, you can't have the Father and the Spirit in the same place. Like, you can't have like, Clark Kent and Superman in the same place at the same time. because, right? you, you can end up a little bit like that. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all exist together in the same time in the same space. And so here are three, I'm going to rattle through these very quickly, but three kind of quick points about the Trinity. So here's the first one, that the Trinity is unwritten, yet biblical. If you search the Bible, you will never find the word Trinity. I mean, in a language sense, Trinity is a Latin word, and none of the Bible's written in Latin. So uh, on that sense, you know, you won't. But the word Trinity isn't found in the Bible, and yet the concept of Trinity is all over it. From the very beginning in Genesis, which we're going to talk about some of the Genesis passages a little bit later on, all the way through to Revelation, 
almost every book, almost every book of the Bible, has mention of God, the Father, maybe using different languages, and the Spirit. And then you get into the New Testament, and Jesus is in every single book alongside the Father, and in most cases, the Spirit. These three distinct persons are present throughout the whole sweep of Scripture. You just don't read the concept of Trinity. Okay. Uh, second one is that each of the three people in the Trinity are distinct and yet connected. That the Father, Son, and Spirit are separate. We see the three appear, sometimes in the same place, sometimes at different points, but they are completely distinct. They have their own identities, and yet they all come from the same source, which has one identity. Okay? And that makes sense, and we're all perfectly comfortable with that, aren't we now? Right? Because we're comfortable with the unexplained. Okay? But they are completely separate and distinct. Let's not get into the headspace of, well, God the Father and Jesus, like Jesus is just a physical embodiment of the Father. It's much bigger than that, that the Father is still there and Jesus is also walking the earth at the same time. Okay, It's not that it's a shape-shifting thing or a time-travel thing. The three are distinct, but they are so inextricably linked and connected that they almost think as one and act as one while maintaining distinction. Is that perfectly clear? Right, we're all comfortable with that. Okay, third point. Okay, third point, clear as mud. The three are different, and yet they have the same purpose. Okay, and prayer is a great example of this. If you read through Romans 8, and we're not going to do that now, but if you have a look at Romans 8, these are some of the things that Paul says about prayer as an example, that we pray to the Father. Okay, now, when I say that, okay, it's not wrong to pray to Jesus or the Holy Spirit, right? So don't worry, okay? But we pray to God the Father. Through the death of Jesus, we have access to the Father. So before Jesus, before the cross, you had to go to a priest to connect with God the Father, okay? Through the cross, there is now open access, so all of us can go directly to the Father through Jesus. As well as that, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and prays for us. So we pray to God. Jesus allows us to pray to God, and he also prays on our behalf. And later in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit takes our prayers to God. So when we pray physically on earth, the Holy Spirit takes those prayers before the Father, and the Holy Spirit also prays for us. Okay, you're with me, clear as mud again. Okay, we pray to the Father. Jesus allows that access and also prays to the Father for us. The Spirit takes our prayers to the Father and also prays to the Father for us. It's a picture of how the three, the three persons of the Trinity all have a separate role, but all of that is to enable God to connect with us through prayer. All the same purpose, but linked together. Does that make sense? You follow that one a little bit. And I think one of my favorite passages which helps um, to explain the Trinity a little bit more is Matthew 28. So this is right at the end of Matthew's gospel. These are the last words that Jesus says to his disciples before he goes up into heaven in Matthew's gospel. And this is what it said. Jesus came and said to them, that's his disciples, the, the, well, as I say, the 12, the 11. I don't think Judas is there at this point. Um, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's why I love this passage. Jesus, the Son, all authority has been given to me. The Father has delegated his authority to me. Okay, Trinity working together. Now I'm telling you to go and bring more people into this relationship that you have. Okay, And we're going to do that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So all three parts of the Trinity are integral to a person's relationship with God. We don't just have a relationship with the Father. We don't just have a relationship with the Son or just the Spirit. We have a relationship with God three in one. It's all there. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Now, of course, Jesus isn't physically with us till the end of the age. Jesus leaves the Holy Spirit to be with us to the end of the age. So when Jesus says, I am with you, he isn't with us, but he also is because the Spirit is God and Jesus is God. Okay? We're still clear as mud on this. Okay. But in this passage, we have God gives the Son authority to do something. Bring people into relationship with all three parts of the Trinity so that they can experience the fullness of God. They can experience who the Father is. They can experience the salvation and the example that the Son gives us to live and the Holy Spirit to empower us to continue in a life of faith, a life serving God and serving our world and our community. And that's where I'm going to leave the Trinity. That's where I'm going to leave the Trinity as a whole. Hopefully there's something in there that helps you just understand a little bit more what that three-in-one means and what, what they look like, the three parts of the Trinity. Okay. And now I want to talk about the Father. And this is nice and simple. I've got about 15 minutes, maybe, at best, to talk about God the Father. So we're going we're gonna to go really quickly. Okay, is everybody all right with that? Um, I'm going to try and deliberately ignore anything about the Son and the Spirit, okay? Because Pastor Russ is going to talk about that, and, uh, and I've got little enough time without adding extra things onto our plates, okay? So, God the Father. See, the word Father, I think there are plenty of people, maybe even some in this room, who are going to struggle with that word. For some of you, you had an amazing Father who provided for you, who was there with you, who ate dinner with you every night, who you could always go to and always rely on. For some of you, you may never have known your father. For some of you, you may have had an abusive father. For some of you, may ha you may have had a father who was in and out of your life. You may have had a father who was a blessing or a disappointment. You may have had a father who, I don't know. <laughs> you can add your own label onto what that word father means to you. And so sometimes when we come to talk about God as a father... For some people, that's almost the worst way we could describe God. Because they would want because for you, that may be, I can't connect with that concept. I cannot connect with the word father because of the way my father treated me. And let me tell you, that's okay. It is perfectly valid and reasonable to feel like that if that's how that word father makes you feel. And what I want to do today is explain what it is that makes God a father that is worth following. 
that is worth pursuing, that is worth trying to be like. See, I am very much like my dad. Okay, if I, I've got an older brother, he is like my mum, and I'm like my dad. And if you ever spent more than about 15 minutes with my dad, you'd be like, yeah, okay, that's just Rob in 30 years' time. Okay. And I find myself saying things that are my dad's words. I find myself going through, th like this, this probably sounds really depressing, I find myself going through thought processes and thinking, my dad would probably think like that as well. I realise that I'm incredibly blessed to, to have that relationship with my dad. But what makes God the father, a father that we want to be like, a father that we want to draw close to, a father that we long to be with and that we know is never going to let us down? Is never going to let us down. And, and hear how, what I'm saying there in the context of my back pain. I could feel that God has let me down by not healing me. But I know that he hasn't. I know that he hasn't. And so when I say God is never going to let you down, God might let down your perception of what God should do. God might let down your perception of what he should do or he ought to do. But he will never let you down according to his will and his purpose. So let me, let me get into, into this. There are, again, like we're Pentecostal, we're going to, we've had one three-point sermon on the Trinity. We're going to have another three-point sermon on the Father now. All right. Um, here, here's, here's the first point. God the Father is indescribably great. Indescribably great or greater than anything we can imagine. I want to read um, the first two verses of the Bible okay, to you. It's Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can we just pause there? How familiar are we with this that we just go, oh yeah, God created everything? Um, what? That we're happy to just, oh yeah, we can skim over that. No, no. God created, like made everything. All matter. Physical processes. Gravity. That was God. Fruit, that was God. Animals, that was everything. I was repairing my fence yesterday, um, uh, and the only thing I made was a mess. Right? I, can't, I can't make anything simply and well. Um, I, I, I could talk about the times I've tried to cook things, and I've put it in front of Rach, and she's gone, what on earth is this? This is horrific, right? I, I, I'm good at making a mess. I struggle to make a meal that's edible, let alone creating a universe with no building blocks. Like, if you give me a box of Lego, I can build you a house. I mean, it's going to be that big, right? And, and the roof won't fit, and, and, and it'll have odd windows that are at different heights and stuff because I'm not that good at organizing. But I can, I can make you a house that, that a little Lego man can live in. Um, as long as you give me plenty of time and the stuff to do. God created everything from nothing. We are so familiar with that concept that we lose sight of the greatness and the power of God. And I think we can become so focused on the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in us and we have an intimate connection with the Holy Spirit and that the... Jesus is our friend, and he is, that we lose the awe 
the reverence, the sight of how enormous and above us God is. That God made himself accessible through Jesus and the Spirit, but he is so far above anything we can even dream or imagine. Just Can you seriously imagine that moment of nothing and then God creates a universe? How do you picture that? And the, our words are, are so inadequate to capture who God is. And even this word father is inadequate to begin to grasp who he is. It, it, it's a title put on to help us. But throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are so many images and pictures and metaphors that are given to describe God just to try and help us grasp one tiny millionth of a percent of who God is. That Isaiah talks of God putting on his armor and going to war. Like God the Father doesn't physically go to war, but he fiercely defends those he loves and will fight metaphorically on our behalf. The Psalms talk about hands that flung stars into space. God is spirit. Okay, the Father is a spiritual being. He doesn't have a physical form. It's not even really right to call him he, because he doesn't have a gender. Not in a kind of 21st century sense. In a, there is no gender, because God is a spirit. And some of the Psalms in Isaiah especially talk about God in very feminine terms. That actually, as well as the Father, God is also a mother. God is also the one who, you know, who nurtures and cares for in a way that a mother does, that a father can't. That God is not bound by any label or identity or title that we can put on him. He is so much bigger and so much more. He is the one from whom all morality comes. He is the one who tells us what is right and wrong. And imprinted in all of us is an element of that, that we all have this sense of natural justice, don't we? And, and that warps over time and, and in our context. And some people's sense of justice is different. But all of us, when somebody does something wrong that hurts us, we want there to be a consequence to that. Well, that is the heart of God, that wrongness needs to be dealt with. All of these, th th what I've shared there is a tiny fraction of everything that God is. He is indescribably great. And if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of actually who God really is. And we lose a big chunk of what our relationship should be with him. That part of our relationship with God is, God, I want to thank you for today. Uh, and, you know, thank you that these good things have happened. I'm sorry for these things. And, and we talk about our lives. But a big part of our, our relationship with God needs to be this. God, I am nothing. I am one man of billions. And yet, you who created the universe from nothing, love me and if that doesn't stir something in you then we've lost that reverence of God as the indescribably greater 
than anything we could ever imagine or aspire to be. Here's the second thing I want to tell you about God the Father. He is passionately relational. He is passionately relational. As well as being so much greater, the universe designer, architect, and creator, he is also passionately relational. And everything we read at the beginning of the Bible is all about relationships. That God created this and the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. There's this relationship between the Father and the Spirit. That he made light and separated it from dark. There's a relationship between light and dark. He made day and night. He made seasons which are all different and yet have to work together as a whole. He made land and sea. He made plants and animals. That he, Everything God created is designed to be in relationship with one another. But God's ultimate relationship that he wanted, we read about going into Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. And this is what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life. And the man became a living creature. Let me pause there. God designed man with his breath so that he could have a relationship with him. God does not have a relationship with the rest of the planet, animals, land, plants, in the same way that he does with us. God designed man for relationship with him. Okay. And uh, where are we? I've lost my thoughts. Um, there we are. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. If you, and I don't particularly encourage this, but if you're particularly bored and, 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 and have some time on your hands, if you look up other ancient Middle Eastern creation stories, right? This is what we all do in our spare time, isn't it? Right, we all go and find, no, of course you don't. But if you ever did, this is what we read about. The gods somehow created the earth and normally comes out of a fight between two gods or groups of gods normally. And then they realize that they're hungry, or they realize that there's nobody to do the work for them. And so they create humans to do work for them. Okay. And I think we sometimes, sub, like you've probably never read those, right? And don't. But if you ever did, like you said, and I think sometimes we impose that thought onto Genesis. And we think, I know I've thought this and I've had conversations with people. So it may be no one in this room, but bear with me. That God created Eden and then made man to work it. No, God made man. And then, because of how great man was, God created a special paradise for him to enjoy. God didn't create something and then go, oh, I need a servant to do the stuff for me. No, God made the man and then was like, huh, let's have something special over here where me and him can walk together, where he can live in the full blessing that I have. That was God's design for humanity, was to not create us to be his slaves and his servants, was to create us to be in relationship with him and to enjoy the blessings and the goodness and the fullness of what that relationship means. And following on from this, um, in Genesis 2, 18 and 24, we read about woman being created. Ooh. And God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So not only did God create man for a relationship with him, but integral in his original creation is a relationship between people. Okay. 
And then this verse later, that appears later, which, again, we often skip over. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we focus on the man and woman are now kind of like a separate unit, and that's great. But notice what happens. God places man within a family, within relationship. He stays in that relationship until there's a new relationship that he can join. People are never, ever supposed to be out of relationship with one another. Ever. That you are, and you know, modern times we don't do marriage quite like this, and that's okay, but take the point that this is making. You are born into a family and you are in relationship with your family. And at the point that you then leave to be married, you are still in this family until you're ready to go into a new relationship. That humanity is always designed to be in relationship with God and relationship with one another. That is essential to who we are, which is why in the isolation periods of COVID, mental health issues shot through the roof. Why? Because people were removed from community. Why? I, I, I passionately believe, and I don't know, I may get in trouble saying this, and, and, and this isn't a this is a generalization, okay, so it's not specific. But our society has huge problems with mental health issues. And I'm utterly convinced that the vast majority of those are because we live in isolation. And we, our community is online. And that's not real community. It's not real community. And so loneliness and isolation and fear and anxiety, and, and please, there are real there are causes of those and i'm not saying that anyone who has ever had any problems with those is lonely please don't hear that but as a society as we've moved away from personal communication from spending time with people i think it's no surprise that mental health issues have skyrocketed and escalated why because god designed us for relationship Uh, and so god is indescribably greater he is passionately relational And he is so passionate in his desire for relationship that even when we mess up, he is relentlessly saving. He is relentlessly saving. We read the story in the Garden of Eden called The Fall. And Eve eats the fruit and is tempted by the serpent and then Adam eats the fruit. And that sets off a chain of events which changes the course of the world away from God's original and perfect design. Okay. But let me ask you this. What is the real problem in the Garden of Eden? What is the real problem in the Garden of Eden? See, I've heard it said, and when I was younger, I probably would have preached this, that sin puts up a barrier between us and God and separates us from God. That God, as holy as the one who is always right, can't stand to be with sin. Is that, everyone's heard something like that, yeah? Yeah? And before I say anything else, please hear me right. Sin is a problem, right? And it is a problem, okay? But I don't think that is the major problem in the Garden of Eden. Let me show you what the major problem in the Garden of Eden is. And it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they, this is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God goes goes on to ask them, why are you hiding? And they said, well, we were naked, and so we're ashamed. Like, I would be ashamed if I was standing here naked. It wouldn't be pretty. Okay? What, so, so they hid. 
Like too much information, sorry. Um, <laughs> they hid from God because they were ashamed at their nakedness. Okay. And God talks to them. Now, if, hear me, if sin is the biggest problem and God cannot stand to be next to someone who's sinful, how does God go looking for them? How does God stand and have a conversation with them? I want to tell you that he can't. But he can, because God has already dealt with sin. Before the first sin happens, before the first time humanity was selfish and stupid, which sounds harsh, but let's face it, we all do that frequently, right? Before humanity was ever selfish and stupid, God had already dealt with it. God had already figured out a plan. And here's what he had to fix, because he is so passionate about relationship. He didn't have to fix sin. He's dealt with that. He had to fix the shame that Adam and Eve felt because they were naked. And so God, as the righteous judge of the world, as the source of morality, punishes, gives out a judgment and consequences to Adam and Eve for what they've done. And that's right and necessary. And then we skip ahead to the end of the chapter, verse 21, and this is what it says. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the heart of God in one verse. This is the heart of the Father in one verse. See, Adam and Eve are told, if you sin, if you eat from this tree, then you will die. Okay. And then you read the rest of the story, and they don't die. And you go, well, God wasn't right, was he? Let me ask you a question. Where did the skins come from? They came from an animal. How do you get the skin off an animal? You kill it. The blood of an animal is shed. The death that Adam and Eve deserved was given to a substitute. And not only... Did God deal with that sin so that the death, the death that should have resulted from what they did, that should have been for Adam and Eve, God passed on to a substitute? Not only that, but he made clothes. Why did he make clothes? Because they were ashamed that they were naked. And so God doesn't just fix the sin. He clothes them and says, no longer... Do you need to be ashamed because you're naked? That shame is gone. I have taken it away. And you can now stand in my presence. And we can talk face to face as we've always done. That is the Father. That is the Father. Who is indescribably greater than anything we could ever imagine. He is passionately relational, that he designed us to be in relationship with him and with one another. And that passion drives him to not just want a relationship, but to remove the obstacles that can stop us. I want to tell you this morning, if you've ever had this thought, and I can almost guarantee we all have, that... Rob doesn't know the things that I've done. It's easy for him to say, I don't need to be ashamed by them anymore. 
Well, let me also say, you don't know the things I've done. And yet I know that in my lowest, my darkest, my most sinful moments, that not only has God dealt with that sin, but he's also said to me, you no longer need to be ashamed of that. Those things that you've done in the past don't hold you back from what I want you to do. They don't hold you back from a relationship with me. And I think about my kids. I've got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. And sometimes, just sometimes, they do things wrong. Once a minute or so. They do things, no, that's not fair. They they do things wrong. Uh, And I put them on the naughty spot. And when they come off the naughty spot, what do I want them to feel? Do I want them to go on feeling bad that they've done something wrong and ruin the rest of the day? Of course I don't. I'm their dad. I'm like, right, we've dealt with that. Learn the lesson. Don't do it again. Now let's go and play football. Now let's go and watch something on TV. Now let's go and enjoy our relationship. I don't want you to dwell on the fact that you've done the wrong thing and upset me. We've dealt with that. That's done. Put it aside. And now let's go and live our life together. That is exactly the heart that God has for us. And I want to say to you this morning, if you let fear or shame of the things that you've done, the things that you've said, the things that you've thought, the way you've treated people, if you think that those stop you from having a relationship with God, you're wrong. If you think those things mean that God can't use you, that God doesn't have a plan and a purpose for you that will bless you and bless those around you, you're wrong. Because the very first moment humanity messed up and stepped away from God, God walked after them. He dealt with their sin. He covered their shame and said, right, let's carry on. That's gone. We've dealt with that. Let's carry on. And this morning, God the Father wants to say to each and every one of you, I know I know where you've been. I know what you've done. None of the negative and bad things that you see in there stop me from loving you. Stop me. The God who created everything, who is unimaginably powerful, doesn't stop me from reaching down my hand and saying, I love you. You're my child. Let's go and live life together. Nothing that you have ever done, said, or thought can stop that intimacy that God wants with you. And there's a response today. What I would love you to do is think, what barriers do I put up to my relationship with God? Because he is so passionately relational that he has torn them all down relentless in his pursuit of saving you and bringing you into relationship with him. So what barriers have you put up between you and God? And if you can 
find a way to say, if those don't matter to God, I'm not going to let them matter to me either. You'll find a freedom, a hope, a joy in that relationship that you would never have imagined. If you can just step over that hurdle, because God is waiting on the other side with open arms. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though we cannot understand you fully, that you are greater than we could grasp, that you reveal yourself to us in ways that we can touch and feel. Thank you that you are a Father who will never let us down, who will never leave, who will never forsake us, who is always there with hope and forgiveness waiting. Father, thank you that your desire is for an intimate and personal relationship with us that doesn't just change our lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Help us to know that you have dealt with our sin and that you have dealt with our shame and our fear and our anxiety and that you have left the way clear for us to run into your arms. Help us, Lord, to grasp that aspect of your character. Help us to be willing to step over those hurdles and run into the fullness of who you are. Thanks for listening to this message from New Life in North Lincolnshire. To find out more, do visit us online at newlifechurch.uk or why not pay us a visit? We'd love to see you.